great to see you here today. I'm, you know, we're doing these conversations with Jesus. This is our last week. We're starting a new series next week on the, uh, no, two weeks from now on the book of Samuel. But, you know, you, you think about uh, if you met Jesus, what would he want to talk about? And as we've been going through this series, it's all challenging stuff. And uh, this isn't any different. We're going to be looking this week on end times, on looking at the future and how the world's going to end and those kinds of things. And so uh, this is going to be fun. You know, it's valuable if you want to know how to live today, it's valuable to know where you've come from and where you're going. And that's how you make sense of today. And so it's important that we know what the future is so we know how to prepare for it. And that's really what this is about. So, uh, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus does a thing that seems kind of irrelevant to us. And he's talking to his disciples and he says uh, that he's predicting the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So, if you're a Jew, this is shocking news. Uh, If you live in Vancouver in 2019, it's like, whatever. I mean, I guess it matters to somebody. But... uh, This is what I think it's like. I think it's like uh, imagining that Vancouver, as far as you're concerned, is the center of the world. And uh, and downtown is going to be obliterated in all that it represents. So uh, it is, it's gonna upset every single part of your life. Your, your work, odds are high, you're probably not going to have any. Your family is going to be, uh, because along with that is, is lost lives, your family is going to be decimated. Uh, your sense of security, everything is going to be lost. And so Jesus is saying, uh, I am forecasting the destruction of all that you have your identity in and all that you think you are. And then he starts talking about some stuff that's hard to understand whether he's talking about that event, which we understand happened in 70 AD, or something way in the future. It's quite confusing. But I'm going to summarize it in a paragraph, kind of picking and choosing through Mark chapter 13, verses 6 to 33. It'll be on the screen. And so this is kind of a condensed version of a lot of stuff, most of which is super hard to understand. Uh, Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. So that's the first point is in the future or in this shortly coming time, uh, there's going to people are going to mess with what you believe and what you've stood for. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Well, that's easier said than done. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. And you'll be put to death uh, by them and by family members. Like this is, okay. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So that's kind of comforting and sobering, isn't it? Uh, You'll be saved. You just have to stand firm. 
be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. So this is, uh, can you imagine being told this about Vancouver? Like, uh, so everything's going to be destroyed. There's going to be famine. We have no water. Uh, wars are going to come. People are going to overtake this place. It's all going to be decimated. And stay faithful in order for you to be saved. This is sobering stuff. What we find here is three categories of warnings. The first category is about deceivers. The second category is about war and natural disasters. And the third category is about persecution. So if you kind of summarize what this passage is talking about, it's talking about those three kinds of things. Now, how is that connected? Deceivers, wars and disasters, and persecution. How is that connected to this destruction of the temple and basically to the Jewish identity, all the things that they once believed in and held to be true? And here's the point, and it builds off of our Easter sermon, that God plans on destroying the old to make room for the new. God's going to destroy the old in order to make room for the new. So looking at the people of Israel, while they trusted in their beliefs, if you were a Jew, you knew that you were right and the rest of the world was wrong. That's how you viewed every other worldview. It's not like today where even as Christians we say, oh, there's an echo of truth all around. Nothing like that was taught. I'm right, you're wrong. And while they trusted in their belief, Jesus warns of deceivers. <clears throat> and so you think that you're standing on solid ground? Beware. Because people are going to come and say, I'm the Messiah. And don't listen to them. Sobering. And in terms of wars and disasters, they hoped in a free and prosperous Israel. If you were a, if you were a, a Jew, you believed... And your great hope was that uh, Israel would become a free nation again, no longer ruled by uh, evil oppressors. It was going to be a time of prosperity and peace. And the uh, temple stand, stood as a symbol of that. And Jesus warns of, so that's what your confidence is in. And Jesus warns them of wars and natural disasters. So not only are people going to overrun your nation, uh, I'm going to be withholding rain. It'd be earthquakes. And uh, uh, you're going to be oppressed from the side and from above. This is, uh, is going to be a hard time. And then finally, they put their hope in their, uh, they put their hope and confidence in their families, and in their religious community. So uh, sometimes Westerners aren't seen as being very uh, community-oriented. It's more of an individualistic society. But if you come from another society that's, uh, that's less so, you'll understand this. But uh, uh, this passage is saying, you know that religious community that you've trusted in? They're going to hand you over to be beaten. And you know your parents and kids, you're going to be at war with one another, and kids are going to hand over parents to be put to death. So you can't trust in your family. 
I mean, it just, it just gets worse and worse. Last week, we talked about this, how death precedes life. And there's not a more graphic and sobering and drastic uh, description of what this is like than in Mark chapter 13. Everything's going to be destroyed. Why? Because Jesus is wanting to come and build a better kingdom. See, he says you have a certain kind of kingdom that's built on your community, on hoping for peace, on a certain set of beliefs. I'm going to build a better kingdom. But you're not going to be able to receive my kingdom unless the old one gets destroyed. So I'm going to help you with that in doing all these, all these things. But I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you better beliefs. Instead of depending upon whom, human tradition and your own opinions, I'm going to give you my truth. But the problem is, you're not going to receive my truth unless I somehow help you destroy your old opinions. Uh, you won't be able to receive it. There's a, uh, there's a, a, a psychological principle and the more that they're working on mapping the brain and understanding how the brain is, works, I think it started with Piaget, but uh, now it's become more scientific, that there's this, um, there's this thing that's called coherence. And what coherence means is that whenever you hear new information, you uh, interpret it through what you're already familiar with because the brain is efficient. Those of you, I'm not a computer programmer, don't want to be, but for those of you who are, you know that what you try to do is you try to take uh, complex data and, and you reduce it by uh, making it more efficient. And so this is what our brains do. When we, when we look at this, we know it's a Bible. So we know that it's a Bible because of the, the shape and it has a, a leather cover and, it's, and we don't go, hmm, there's a, a leather-bound thing with paper. I'm not sure what paper is. I have to go back and think about that. Like, we don't start from zero every time we look at something. We filter it through what we already know and categorize it according to familiar categories. You follow me on this? We do it, like, a million times every day. Now, that's really handy and efficient, but the problem with that is that... Uh, Whenever we read our Bible or God says something to us, we can't, it's hard for us to receive new information. Because as soon as new information comes to us, we immediately try to fit it in to our old boxes. Because if it's new, it's going to freak us out. I don't know what to do with the new information. So I'm going I'm to fit it in to what's familiar. So... Uh, uh, handy and not helpful because God's coming and saying, I want to give you something so great and so new, there's no categories for it. But I'm going to help you with that by destroying your old beliefs, uh, even allowing deceivers to be among you to kind of shake what you are confident in so that I can bring something new to you. I can remember when I was growing up, 
uh, sorry, I'm, I'm in my early 20s now, but I, as I grew up, I was in a church, uh, sorry, <laughs> that's funny. I'm going to refer to being in my early 20s. Uh, but as I was growing up, um, I was taught that the gifts of the Spirit weren't for today. There was no healings. Those were all psychological things that were going on. That's what I was taught. And it's what I believed. And so if I saw a healing, I immediately rationalized it. I would say, well, they really weren't sick. Or it was positivity that changed some kind of chemistry. Or they had a new hope. And they didn't realize they were able to do something, but really they could. Or there was some medicine that they took. Or they changed their diet. Or I'll just go on and on and on. And I'll rationally explain, uh, because in the name of coherence, I had to fit it in to what I already thought. And so then, uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear this in transformations, but I have an experience with somebody who touches my shoulder and I feel spiritual power go through my body. And in an instant, God dismantled my old beliefs and gave me a fresh new revelation of the power and presence of God available for us today. But that was a, for me, that was a violent, disturbing moment. But he needed to do that if I was to receive something new. <clears throat> oh, there's so much to say. So, Jesus is, Jesus is built on better beliefs. Not just our opinions of the world. Not just what we grew up believing. He wants to come and dismantle that and give us something way better called his truth. And then he wants to give us a better hope. Now, come on. What is the primary thing that you and I depend on in any given day? Your own strength. Like, we have this thing that says, oh, no, no, I'm a Christian. I believe in the power and presence of God and that he's here to, to heal and bless and, uh, you know, uh, Bless the work of my hands. I believe all that. But you and I know that Monday morning, nobody's caring about your prayer life. They want to know how many widgets you're producing. They want to know whether you're doing what you were told to do and you do it well. And if you're lazy, you're going to get fired. Unless you're in a few unions, which you won't get into. We, so God puts us in situations where our strength no longer is sufficient for the task at hand. Because he's trying to blow out of the water this idea of coherence and just fit things in. He's trying to say, I want to give you something better than that. I'm going to give you my presence and my power. I'm going to bless you beyond what your hands can control and achieve. And so this sounds beautiful, but functionally, you and I barely live in that reality. We believe it mentally, of course. You have to. If you read the Bible, I mean, it's kind of... But functionally, so what God does functionally is destroy the land and force a people to have a new paradigm and a new way of experiencing life. It's better 
but there's some dismantling that has to occur. So he gives better beliefs, a better hope, and then he gives a better community. This community is not built on ethnicity or on common interests. It's not about convenience. It's built on the love of God. It's a new way of experiencing relationship. It's about being uh, in uh, having an allegiance to him first. And out of that, we're a community of faith where we, where we share his love with one another. Amazing. Amazing. But again, uh, coherence, it's hard for us to fit that in to how we experience relationships. Relationships are typically... Uh, uh, consumeristic. There's some things that I want. I hate being lonely. I feel obliged to go to church, so I'll find a good church to go to. Uh, you know, I, f- I find some friends who have common interests. And uh, it's just obvious that you're not going to come back next week if we all do a bad job. Or, I mean, you'll, be, you'll pray about it for a few weeks and then not come back. But if we, uh, but if we don't do well, you're going to vote with your feet. We all know that. And you have a very spiritual reason for doing it. I'm sure you will. Because uh, the Western view of relationship is I'm in this relationship for as long as it benefits me. And so God comes along and says, great, I want to give you something better than that, and it's going to require me to have your family undermine you and put you to death and have your community flog you. And I, because you can't even receive the fresh life that I want to give you in community because you keep slotting it in to the old paradigm. So I've got to dismantle all that to give you this fresh new thing. Are you following me? This is really hard. Because you, you have God saying, I love you. And I'm going to give you a community. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you eternal life. And it just goes on and on and on. You go, yeah. I'm going to sing about that. I love singing about that stuff. And he says, oh, and by the way, the way that I'm going to give you that is I'm just going to dismantle all that you've been relying on now. Because you can't receive if your hands are already full. I'm just going to help you with that. It's called like death and earthquakes and famine and war. You know, can I get an amen, right? But this is how Jesus talks. It's just shocking. So what's confusing in this passage, well, there's like a hundred things, but what's particularly confusing in this passage is which parts refer to the past when the temple was destroyed in, in 70 AD, which was about that and which is about his second coming, his return. And scholars, you read a few um, commentaries, and they argue over this. They go, well, you know, the first half was about the past, second half was about the future. It's hard to figure out because it, it, it kind of bounces back and forth. Now, I just to let you know how, you know, fleshly I am, I want most of it to be about the past. That whole war thing, and <laughs> I don't really want that to be in my future. 
So I'm just really trusting Jesus. This is all about 70 AD. That's what I'm believing for. And that all that stuff happened once as an example for me to use, a theoretical example for me to use for the future. But you can't get away with that. The passage won't let you do that. Why? Because Jesus is preparing us the way that he was preparing them to purify their hearts for a coming kingdom. He's doing the same thing now that he was doing then. He's not a new God. He works in the same ways. So when Jesus talks about the future, it isn't about signs and dates. When I was first a Christian, I loved reading about end times. I loved uh, the book of Revelation. I thought that whole thing was super cool. I'd go through the Gospels, and whenever Jesus talked about the end times, I would, I would study those things. And uh, even as I got a little bit older, I would read books on it. And the books that I would read had charts. And these charts would outline all that would happen before Jesus would return. And then we'd find out where we were on the chart, you know. And, oh, sick, there's a little bit more bad stuff coming. That's okay. And we'd, you, you, it was all about prediction. And the signs were kind of to help us prepare. I think, uh, you know, 40 years later, that that was a total butchering and misunderstanding of what Jesus' talk about the future is all about. The way that we prepare for the future is not by locating a date, it's by preparing our hearts for his coming kingdom. That's how we prepare. In fact, if we spend our energy uh, with charts and dates and signs, it's actually a way to avoid preparing our hearts. It's kind of like the person who says, uh, you know, okay, you know, I'm, I'm 27. Odds are high I'm going to live till 60. 80, but, you know, let's play it safe. So 60. Odds are high. So I'm just going to live for myself until 60 because that's what the chart you know, I can, it's pretty safe. I can live for myself until 60 and then give my life wholly to Jesus for fire insurance and then live a few unfortunate years before I die. <clears throat> you know, it misses, doesn't it? It kind of misses the point where the whole point is to have a love relationship with God that gets fulfilled in the coming age. And so the way that we read these uh, predictive texts is not about signs and dates. It's about warning of how God works in the world and to be alert and prepared. And the preparedness is not about extra, you know, water rations. It's about preparing our heart to know how to trust in Jesus because that's what the coming kingdom is built on. It's interesting to note that there is one clear sign. If there can be a sign in this text, we didn't read it yet, but there's one clear sign 
that has fascinated me over the years that is, uh, it's not metaphorical or hard to believe. There's other ones that talk about the abomination of desolation, whatever that means. But, but this one is clear, and it's, it's in verse 10. It says, uh, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. So there's one, there seems to be one clear marker in human history that when that happens, you know, it really is end times. But we're still waiting for that. And it's one of the reasons why our church is so committed to reaching unreached people groups. Because we want the gospel to preach, to be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. Why is that clear? And uh, this could be at least one idea. Is that if you were to sign up for that mission, it would reveal your heart's desire for his kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you were to sign up for evangelism and to go to the ends of the earth, odds are, heart, odds are high your heart has been purified in that you're longing for the kingdom and you're devoted to your king. And this is what God is looking for as he prepares the world to receive him. So, last question. How then does he purify our devotion? If we know that this is what all these warnings are about, hard warnings, hard to understand living in the city and nation that we live in, but boy, you live somewhere else, this is very practical, relevant stuff. But how does he purify our devotion? Well, we said it, and I'd like to emphasize it now. He builds and he dismantles. Or better said, he dismantles and then he builds. 1 Samuel 2.7 says this. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Isn't that an interesting passage? The Lord sends poverty and wealth. And he humbles and he exalts us. There's only one time this has happened to me. Uh, this fellow has passed away. He was a prophet. His name was John Paul Jackson. I'm in a, I'm in a huge um, auditorium. And he picks me out of a crowd of over a 1,000 people. He asked me to stand up. He said a number of things that were super meaningful. And he said something to me that I have never forgotten. <clears throat> and he says, uh, young man, as, as low as the lows is going to be as high as the highs. He says, you're going to have va very deep valley experiences. And you're going to have great mountaintop experiences. And that has been a a frame of reference for me going through life. Because if you're all like me and you're in a valley, you can't see a thing except your pain and all that's wrong. And so I need to be, I need to, okay, this is poverty. Okay, uh, but there's context to this poverty.
Now, you guys, I'm just so sobered by this. Because what if we're a people who have only signed up to be wealthy and exalted and not humbled and impoverished? I am very sobered by this. What would happen if war came? What happens when you're slighted by someone? What happens if it's a bad sermon? This could be the moment. Like, what happens? What happens if, uh, if your friend group in this church all moves or gets disgruntled? What are you going to do? Does the, does the Lord only send wealth and honor? Or does he also send poverty and humility? This is tremendously clarifying and purifying of our devotion to Jesus. So sometimes we get promotions and a raise. We say, Jesus is good. I have more money in the bank. I'm finally recognized for my amazing giftedness. It took them so long. I knew it for years. And other times, we get laid off. He sends poverty and wealth. He's sending both. Man, that messes with me. Sometimes, when you share your faith, people are going to come to Christ. It's really great. I don't know of a greater high. And other times, they're going to mock you. I have stories of both. Sometimes, we have great friends. And other times, we're incredibly lonely. It's just true. Sometimes you're just going to have a great community. Uh, people say, uh, who study these things, that people come to church for many different reasons, but they stay for only one, human relationships. Isn't that an interesting thought? I've watched countless people have a dynamic uh, encounter with God, and they don't stay in church not because of the worship or the preaching. They just don't have any friends. Jesus just isn't enough. And so then they move on. <clears throat> Interesting. Sometimes we get cancer. Sometimes we get in car accidents. And other times we're healed. And other times we avoid car accidents. Debbie can tell you the story of a time when she, I, I don't know if you were distracted or what it was, but you're, you're driving home from work and she's, the light is green. She's about to go through the light and she feels her foot go off of the gas pedal and onto the brake. And she looks up and a car runs the red light in front of her. Well, that's a cool story. And other times we get hit. Both 
are critical. If all you ever did was get hit, I don't care how you frame it, that's not a great God. But if all that ever happens is you're just getting blessed and richer, if you're anything like me, you're going to think it's all about you. And you will not have joined his kingdom. It would have been just about building your own. And God lives in the tension of discipling us toward love and relationship by letting both of these realities define us. In conclusion, Job 2.10 says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job has the authority to speak on this. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? My question to you this morning is, will you receive all that the Father gives you? Some of it might be very, very hard. Uh, usually out of your control. And others of it will be far beyond what you could ever deserve or imagine. There are times I, uh, I lie on my bed and I go, God, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I am so empty inside. I'm going, I... I know that you said you couldn't give me anything beyond what I can bear. I, I think this is that limit. I think we've now found the line. And I don't know that I can, I can move. And other times, uh, which for me is a, a miracle, I am emotional with joy, so overwhelmed by the kindness and generosity of my father. I just can't. I just can't, why? I, I have, there's just no reason why you're this good toward me or us. Like, I'm speechless. My friends, the purification of our heart happens in the tension of those two realities. And so will you receive both? Or will you question his goodness if life doesn't go according to the building of your kingdom? Finally, as the worship team, you can come up. What false identities is God dismantling in your life? <clears throat> what false identities? We know what Israel had their identity in. They had their identity in the temple, in their religious community, in their set of doctrine, in uh, believing in a safe land that they could live, and that was their identity. And God dismantled that identity to set them free and give them a better one, his identity. Will you receive from the Father his dismantling that will you let him use the temporal to accomplish the eternal? Will you, will you let this moment of life uh, 
be used for a greater and more eternal good. And you and I know that when we stand before the Father, every discomfort, every pain, every uh, heartache is all going to fade away when we see him face to face. But will we let that journey occur? Father, <clears throat> I know your love, and I know you're trying to set us free. I know that. But I have to admit that sometimes it's hard to believe. And when I read passages like this of what you do to your people, it brings questions into my heart. But I confess today that you're always good, whether we're rich or poor, humble or exalted, you're always good. And you, you don't have a few agendas, you only have one agenda, to set us free from our old kingdom to receive your new and better and eternal kingdom. Thank you that you're coming again. Thank you that you're establishing that kingdom on earth. And thank you that you're dismantling the old kingdom in our hearts as we prepare for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.